After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hey everyone, it's Raghu. I'm back with my original man, the man of my <laughs> life that got me going on these podcasts. David Silver, David, been been a while. Yeah, it's good to be Maybe here. Maybe a couple of months. It's terrible. It, you know, when we, I say we usually it's good do to be one here, in my, in my home, so it's good to be here. Or as Keith Richards said, when they he came on to a show. And the host said, Keith, we are so happy to have you here. And Keith said, I'm happy to be anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and it's good to be here. And um, yeah, so um, yeah. I do want to, I do want to just, and I've mentioned this before, but uh, for everybody out there, I haven't been able to get David quite as much because he's got some other projects going on. And the number one project that I have really been uh, working with him and encouraging, right? I have been really trying to make this happen. Uh, and it is happening. I mean, actually, if David wasn't a perfectionist, he'd this book would be out. Uh, not really, but you know what I mean. So, but uh, this, uh, I won't describe the book or anything. David wouldn't like that. And just to say, I'll say one thing. <laughs> We've known each other a very, very long time. And yes. in the course of that time, we've been through different adventures together. And and we've spent many a, a day where nothing was going on. Zero. And suddenly uh, I might ask a question or two about something or we had a subject we were talking about. And the next thing I know, yeah, that reminds me of when I and a story oh, flows out a, from then. Such a bore. I do that. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody who knows David knows the truth. So uh, so anyhow, yes, this is this is. Um, uh, obviously, the the book is going to have a core and a wonderful thread that ties it all into something that's dear to David's heart. And I won't try to even say anything about that, although I could. Uh, but I uh, yeah, we'll talk about it a little bit, okay? Just a little bit. Well, you know, um, I wrote somewhere that the word bi autobiography, I don't like it uh, because I associate it, you know, with... <laughs> with Gandhi, with Nelson Mandela, with Yogananda, you know. 
and I don't like, but that's what this is basically. But it's not um, conventional. So, I mean, in other words, I'm I'm grabbing what I would call um, degrees of epiphany that I've experienced in my life and making chapters of them. So it ranges from, you know, fairly mundane stuff but that was significant on some level of, of, you know, awareness, consciousness. Some of it is just, wow, I experienced that. And um, what I wanted to say to you, Raga, was that I never, I had no volition in this of any real kind. (laughs) You know, people often say about their lives, I was driven to do this. And, and, you know, that's beautiful and and, and true. It's not true for me. I, I was, I never wanted to be anything quite honestly. And when I was in university in England, I, well, I always thought I was going to end up as a teacher of, of literature. That's mm. all. And which made me happy. It was better than many things that I could have been. But, you know, that's not the way it worked at all. And things just fell into place. Now, as you said, you know, the many days are full and many days are empty. So your life is a complex mosaic, a tapestry of nothing happening on the outside, but a lot happening, hopefully, as you get older on the inside. And the stories in my book are going to be stories about vitality at the lowest level and awareness and spiritual awareness at a higher level, maybe, but it's all grist to the mill, as the man said. Um, and some of them are inherently kind of didactic, but it, but they're fun, you know, I look at them and I think these chapter headings are very fun. Like I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, one chapter is called John Lennon and the elephant in the room. Hmm. Story both about empathy and about um, duplicity. And um, I don't t- know that one of all oh, the well, story. I'll, then I'll tell you because they keep you interested. Okay, please. I'm not mm-hmm. sure what the date was. Um, I have it written down, but I, I, you know, in fact, I'll tell you what the date was because I can just go to it mm. and 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 look at it. Um, it was in the in the seventies. And, um, uh, you know, in, in New York. And I didn't know John Lennon. I knew he lived in New York. Um, but my association with the Beatles was the fact that I was from that part of the world. And like everyone else, I loved the Beatles. Um, I never saw John Lennon on the street. I never worked with him. Uh, but an occasion happened. Uh, now I found it. It was on August 4th, 1973. Okay. And um, what it was, was a, a party, a typical music business rock and roll party. And I was invited to it. And it was a party for the band called Elephant, Elephant's Memory, hmm. uh, who acted as John Lennon's backing band when he left the Beatles along with other bands. But he did play with them a lot in New York. Elephant's Memory. They were kind of a soul, rhythm, and blues band. Uh, they weren't the, the most astounding band in the world, but when they were playing with John, they were, they could keep up. And I was interested in their album. So they had a, 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 a release party. Hmm. August 4th, 1973, at the Mercer Arts Center, which is a place where Talking Heads started and many other people, it was later burned down, actually, or it, it burned. <laughs> anyway, um, there it was, and I, we went, my 
ex-wife Ronnie and I went together and we walked in and there was a large crowd in this club, a large crowd. But as you entered the club, uh, there was a spotlight and it was shining on a, a kind of a, a roped off area where there was a baby elephant. Huh. And um, I, like, I, I was sort of, oh my God. And I, I walked towards it with Ronnie, my, my ex, and, and I noticed it was trembling. And it was very small. And it was frightened. And I just freaked. Mm. And I knew the owner or the manager of the Mercer Art Center. And I found him, I sought him out and I said, this is absolutely unacceptable. This animal is going through some kind of hell. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, the elephant in the room, <laughs> this is now an expression, uh, is frightened, I can tell. So I want you to remove the elephant, no matter what. And he said, get out of my fucking office. And I said, no, I'm, I'm serious. My wife and I are appalled by this. This animal is going through suffering for a stupid publicity stunt. He said, get out or I'll have you thrown out. <laughs> I walked back into the room very disconsolate. And Ronnie and I were just going to leave. And at that moment, John and Yoko walked in. And the kind of crowd sort of parted actually in a sort of rather casual kind of way but they did and um john looked around for a while and then he came to the elephant and was standing next to me with yoko and turned to me and said what the fuck is going on here man i said i don't know uh, this isn't good no this is bloody horrible where's the fucking manager I said, he's in that room, if you go, and the manager came out, and Lennon said to him, take this animal out of here, right now, right now. And the guy just immediately said, I, absolutely, John. <laughs> and then I said to Mr. John Lennon, thank you so much. That's what I would call the great use of power. Mm. And John laughed, and then left immediately as we did that's that story mm. and wow really what it's about is you know both the i don't know the underlying hypocrisy of this situation i was very distraught i mean i was freaking out rago but you could tell if you were half a human being you yeah. could tell this elephant was going through a personal hell realm yeah an elephant ganesh <laughs> you anything know, and, any 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 alive sentient yeah. thing. But of course, as soon as, as John said it, um, that was the end of it. And so that's a story, and it's about many things. It's about being nice to animals and and sometimes being an activist instantaneously rather than institutionally. Mm. You know, I just became an immediate animal activist because I saw some suffering. Uh, so that's, you know, what is that? 500 words. Or mm, something. But it's not a big story. Some of them are short. Some of them are very yeah. long. But what about the fact that did anyone else? There was a lot of other people in the room. Did anyone else go up and? No. 
there was no empathy going on at the very least. No, my there compassion. was there was none. There was drunkenness and a kind of New York chatter chatter, mm. um, you know, sort of flirtation with anyone type of vibe. Yeah, it was. Well, you know, I mean, if that, if that hadn't happened, it would have just been normal. You know, like normal New York in the seventies. Yeah, but well, of course, but John obviously had tremendous. Obviously, even if you don't know him and you never met him, but you know it through his music because he he was the real deal. That kind of sensitivity towards what's going on around us, not just I came here to support this band because they were my backing band, and that's and the first thing he noticed was this. He wasn't uh, let me go shake their hands and get out of here. So mm-hmm. obviously. This points to uh, conscious awareness and, and so on, and uh, empathy, compassion, right? Yes, and, and and you know, last week there was a, an ABC documentary about John Lennon because he would have been eighty, really. This this uh, last week, and so they did a doc, a two-hour doc about him in New York, but it was mainly about the nurses and doctors and cops who were there when he was murdered and then the first hour was more like my film about the beatles it was more documentary um i was disappointed and i, I this is a point to what you're saying Raghu. i not only myself but a couple of other people i think one from the satsang also wrote on facebook exactly what i was thinking which was wait a minute guys lenin's significance was that of consciousness and spirituality as well as music but it wasn't about his murder he was murdered. He was gone. Next, next dimension. Next incarnation. Next plane of plane of reality. But ABC, you know, in their tabloid way, decided to make it about that. Mm-hmm. So if you didn't know anything about John Lennon, you didn't know that much at the end of two hours. You knew the Beatles were sensational, but most people sort of know that. Uh, even younger people have some sense of it, mm. and it wasn't satisfactory for that reason. And I think quite a few people felt the same way I did, which was you just wasted. A time to, but c'est la vie, you know. I, I'm not a complainer, so uh, <laughs> I, I had many connections with the Beatles. Uh, well, my mother was was uh, born in Liverpool. She lived opposite Strawberry Fields, uh-huh. and and when uh, when the when the record came out, I happened to be in in in, in Sussex with her, uh, and I, I came for a visit from Boston, where I was living, and uh, my mother typically she said, "Well, I don't know, you know." I mean, Strawberry Fields was an orphanage. Why doesn't he mention that? What kind of what kind of story is that? It's mm. nothing to do with the orphanage. And I said, Mom, um, it's called LSD. <laughs> 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 yeah. And so, my, you know, I had a heritage. And, and, you know, Liverpool was a very interesting place to me because it was about mm, 38 miles away from where I lived. It was an exciting city, unlike the town I lived in, which was anything but exciting. Mm. And Liverpool always had an aura of being somewhat more cosmopolitan and global in a way, because it was a trading port. So the Beatles, you know, came out of that. And um, I had quite a few connections with the Beatles, in which I'm writing about two. I do want to say something, because you're, you're talking about, you know, that wonderful story with John and and then your connection to the Beatles and you slot you slid by the fact of your movie and David uh, made a movie called the uh, complete Beatles was part of a making of that movie 
and wrote the movie? Did you direct the movie? I, no, was, no, I didn't direct it. The uh -huh. director was a, a, a fellow called Patrick Montgomery, who was terrific, uh -huh. great director. Uh -huh. So, uh, but biggest selling videotape of that you can't even get now, correct? No, you can't, unless you get slightly friendly with me and I'll send it to you. Hmm. Really? <laughs> well, if you know, I, I, I can, I can. It's, well, you know what? We should take the damn thing and transfer it and digitize it. And I have it. I have it all digitized, everything. Oh, you have it. Okay. I have the master. All right. Well, so now we're going to get a lot of requests for that movie. Well, so. I'm not going to send it to everybody. I'll be breaking the law. But I, I would, you know, it, 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 it did well. It went to uh, number one twice, actually. Um, mm. But on the Billboard charts but um it actually became more uh, uh, sort of celebrated a couple of years ago by rolling stone and called it a masterpiece and i was so thrilled by that i realized that i was not ready for the monastery that, uh, <laughs> you know i mean uh dilgo kensi talks all the time about you know the, the pandana um tigris town thousand words of advice or whatever it's called and he says when people say nice things about you you like it when they say bad things you don't like it you're screwed <laughs> get out of that you're going to die soon and you're not going to care so stop thinking that it's good when people say so anyway rolling stone wrote this great review when that other guy uh ron howard <laughs> who i really like um made the movie about the beatles two years ago yeah and Hearing it, they said, "Yeah, it was great, but the real good one is is this one by David Silver." Really? Yeah, and then you know, it made me feel good because it was all these years later. Um, yeah, I actually um, kind of like the movie because it's very sort of simple and chronological. So if you don't know anything about them, you get the basic facts. It's not flowery. In my first script for the movie, which took me about six weeks to write, uh, when I gave it to the director. Uh, he said, this is wonderful. I love this. It's, it's right. Um, you've got to rewrite the whole thing. <laughs> I said, why? He said, there's so many adjectives and you're making so many comments based on your real emotional feeling about the Beatles. They're not going to care in the 21st century, David. Tell mm. them who they were, where they came from, what kind of people they were, what their parents were, what class they were in, where did they go, where did they go to school? Do that. Don't say that they were, you know, sublime. <laughs> <laughs> it was very good advice yeah. and i rewrote the whole film and, oh, and cool. i wanted to talk about that for me because it was really an interesting process um there were just really three of us involved in the movie even though it was a, a you know a global release uh me and and patrick the director and a woman called pamela page who was the editor and we decided the only way to do this because we had access to all the footage from from apple the apple core the beatles company and from the owners of that company, which was EMI. And they gave me access to everything. So there was so much visual stuff and I had so much written stuff. So we made a deal. Pamela would do five minutes of film editing of the footage we had, and I would write to that. Mm -hmm. Then I would write five minutes that was sequential to that. Mm -hmm. And she would edit to that. Wow, that's it was cool. two hours. So in fact, we did, you know, an hour each uh -huh. and, and based our work upon the others. I mean, there were discussions occasionally, you know, uh, like, nah, I don't think you've got that, or whatever. Thing. But basically, we stuck to it. So the film mm. was a true collaboration um, between an oh, editor and the director and myself. Mm. Very cool. So uh, just to 
And I, you know, I'm going to, because I know uh, a number of the different stories in the book, I'm, my mind is going to one of them. You may not want to relate it and you'll just say, I don't want to say, tell anybody this story. Okay. It's a deal. You see, David and I, we didn't plan anything here. We're just doing this. You got, you know, you got to know if you've listened to mind rolling before, you know that we're just hanging out like we normally do. But, uh, for all the way from John Lennon, right? Yeah, yeah. Then we do a big arc to yeah. Maybe I don't. You probably you could guess, Momar, Gaddafi, <laughs> John Lennon, Momar, Gaddafi. You guys remembered oh. Gaddafi? You know, actually, you uh, know, he only died what a few years ago. They killed him in Libya, yeah. Libya right? Yeah, it was a big mistake. Apparently, they shouldn't have done it because he had. He was the only one of those guys who promised not to have nuclear weapons, and he gave up all his bad weapons before. But he was a horrible dictator. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, I was. I was in um, the disappointment actually, and the phone rang, and a voice said to me, "Oh," and I said, "Excuse me," Ooh. and I said, uh, uh, "I," I didn't say anything. I said, could you speak that slow, more slowly? He said, it's all there, there. I said, no, no, he's not here. He doesn't live here. He gave that number. I said, well, yeah, but he, uh, he, he comes here. Uh, can I give him a message? Long silence. Tell him, I want the tape. I want that tape. I said, okay, you, you want the tape. Uh, is it, what, what, kind, what kind of tape is it? Now, reggae is a, it was, Earl was a reggae you know, disc jockey and video jockey. So this was not a surprising request. I said, but he has many tapes. What, what, what tape? Mixed tape. <laughs> I said, tape. okay, great. I'll tell him now, who, who is this calling? Because I, you know, he said, oh, no, no, just tell him I want the tape. You know. I said, no, no, I can't do that because I, I need to know, you know, who wants the tape and how to get it to you. So could you tell me your name? Muammar. I said, Muammar. You mean as in Muammar Gaddafi? I am Colonel Gaddafi. I am Gaddafi. (laughs) And you know, I have enough insane friends (laughs) that I could have thought that this is really lame. I mean, why did they shoot you? I didn't believe him. And I said, okay, okay. You are Colonel Murmar Gaddafi. I am him. I said, okay, so you want a mixtape from my friend? <laughs> it's, you know, I hear it on a yacht. I said, what? you heard it on a yacht? This is, you know, talk about a surreal conversation. He says, yes, you're not Zahara. You're not Zahara. I said, yes, I do, as a matter of fact. She was a, a princess from the Emirates. I had met her several times. Ariat, she played tape. I like this tape, this reggae tape. Tell him, send it. Colonel Gaddafi, Libya. Boom, hung up. And then you're, and you're still thinking someone's just... No, 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 because oh, Earl, I, I spoke to Earl maybe two days later and said, well, he said, oh, yeah, 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 man, 
he told her he loved the, he loved the tape. It was big, and news. he knew the princess. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. my. Oh, oh yeah. Earl, the princess was Earl's girlfriend. Oh, <laughs> right. So you know, I and and he, but he never told me about this. He never said. That. Now Earl was not on the yacht. No. His girlfriend was on the yacht. He was a girlfriend's yacht. Yeah. Oh. Now, if you're not going to read the book now, I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't written the book yet, so you can't get it. But, you know, that happened to me. And, you know, there's a lot of mix-up story, mixed-up stuff in there because um, Earl, you know, is a part of my life. We all have people in our lives who are kind of change your life somewhat, you know, all the way from a guru to a, to a passing acquaintance. And uh, he's been a, a part of my life. Mm. Uh, because he was the person designated by Bob Marley to become the real first uh, sort of television reggae person in 1977. And I was friendly with him. And uh, he was he had really exotic friends, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, you know, including princesses who liked reggae that he met somehow. And, you know, Keith Richards' daughters, Theodora, you know, I mean, all these people who loved reggae music. And so it sort of came through him. And uh, Toots Ibert, who sadly for all of us passed away very recently, yeah. a couple of months ago. People like that, um, I met through Earl mainly. Mm. Um, but I didn't meet Bob Marley through Earl. I knew Bob Marley several years before I, I met Earl. And, uh, you know, so um, that, was, uh, that was that story. Mm. Um, I'm looking at a list now. I actually made just it. Uh, just about uh, just to let everybody know. I don't know, folks, if you'll ever be able to experience this, but uh, David was in with Earl, I believe, in a in a hotel room somewhere, and uh, they actually videotaped Bob doing Redemption song over and over. And if uh, anybody has not who's listening to this podcast right now, if you have not heard Bob. Marley, any rendition of Redemption Man, uh, please go find it. It was, and this was particularly extraordinary. Now, you know, there's whether yes. that would come out uh, in any part of someone's lifetime, I have no idea. Well, it has been out in a couple of places, but um, it was the day before he really knew that he he was very sick, and you know, it was at the, the Essex House on Central Park South in New York City, uh, uh, which is sort of a somewhat fancy hotel. And uh, Bob was staying there. And the reason he stayed there, I asked him, uh, was because he could just put his tracksuit on, which he was probably wearing already, because that's all he ever seemed to wear, and then just take the elevator down and, and go walk across the street to Central Park. And he had a, a, a you know a route there that he liked to do, not that long. And he'd done that for a long time. Uh, every time he played in New York, he would do that. So this was, um, I think, in I think it was September 1980 when we videotaped him, and um, that time I knew him quite well because we'd done other videotapes with him, and I knew that he had uh, he, his illness was his cancer was already virulent. The strange thing is he didn't look at all sick. Wow. Uh, he looked exactly like he always looked. And um, he always looked the same. You know, some people look different and some people always look the same. And he looked 
bang on the same as always. And I was kind of relieved because, but it, it didn't alter the fact. So anyway, that was the, the night before, the afternoon before he went to the Central Park, went to run and collapsed. That was his last run. And pretty much the last thing that we knew about him. So I think I actually videotaped the, the last piece with, with Bob. Uh, there was a, he did a concert in Pittsburgh and I'm not sure whether he did it the day after or the day before. I'm not sure. Yeah. But um, he was there, I believe, that at that time um, to do Madison Square Garden. And um, we all know who saw him, that he was unique in every way. And was, a, you know, Earl asked him in the interview that day, and we have this on tape, I've seen it many times. He said to him, ah, Bob, you know, what's it feel like to be a superstar, you know? And Bob said, I'm not a superstar. No, I mean it, I'm not a superstar. I'm a messenger. I'm just a messenger of Jah the Almighty. That's it. And he was so serious when he said this. And Bob was a jokey kind of guy, you know, he would joke around. And you just got the sense that he was truly a vessel. And that um, he didn't see himself as really in that type of persona. He didn't have that role in his system. Uh, he was truly uh, a very deeply spiritual man who was flawed like everyone, sort of. But, you know, he he only performed for the purpose of vitalizing his audiences mm. with a spirit that he felt constantly all the time. And, yes, he was normal, you know. He, was, he liked to play a lot of soccer and he liked to do all kinds of stuff. But he was truly... Um, some kind of a prophet. Oh, yeah. You know, but you would never agree to even that word. Messenger was yeah, the only yeah. word that he considered yeah. to be important. Yeah, that's certainly what a prophet is, a shaman. You know, I mean, I saw him in the garden. He was nothing more or less than a shaman yeah. in terms yeah. of the transmission. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, so I veered, I veered off there just because I was remembering that incredible... Well, video. I mean... The stories in this book vary. I'll a very short one about Vikram Soni, um, who's a friend of, of Raghu's and, and Mohan's and other many people in, in the Maharaji Satsang. And I stayed with him in Delhi um, for a while, a few years ago. And the thing about Vikram was that at that time, he was a professor of astral physics, astrophysics. Uh, later, he became a professor of earth science, I believe at the Muslim University in Delhi. But at that time, he was at the other university, the big one. And I've never met a more pragmatic person in my life, uh, and particularly on the subject of science and of uh, ecology. And he was a leader at that time in India of certain ideas to change the centers of cities into parks. Because Delhi, as you know, has a large park in the center of the city which is run by the Indian army. And at that time, they were trying to encroach upon it with many more barracks and all kinds of stuff. And Vikram was part of the movement to stop that. So I was deeply, you know, sort of interested in this person. Uh, apart from being a wonderful guy and, and, and a devotee of, of the guru, um, his, his life was interesting. His thoughts were interesting. His book that he wrote, which is called Naturally, it's about how to convert India and the rest of the world into a natural energy transactional uh, mindset involving all kinds of water, air, everything. And it was brilliant. I read it. 
and so I just was in awe of him in a way, and and everybody liked him. And then, but the the moment of truth came for me, and it was a, such a, an epiphany to me. We went to Brindavan to to uh, Maharaj's ashram, and the day was it was in the monsoon time, and <laughs> the streets were so wet that you're you were walking up to your ankles in, in, <laughs> as the driving rain came down, and um, I remember we went to a restaurant first where a lot of the Krishna temples are. There's a little, I believe, a Chinese restaurant of some kind there. And we, we uh, talked. And the more I got to know this man, Vikram, the more I understood what a real scientist is, what a real analyzer of the physical world is. Mm. But when we went to the ashram, when I saw him fall on his knees, uh, and then all the way to the ground, in his devotion to um, Amurti, and then to an 85-year-old, 87-year-old woman who knew Maharaji. And he turned into this complete devotee in every way, in every way. It was exuding from his body like, like sweat. He was just different, and he was just completely, I've never seen anyone so absorbed, so I'm immersed so completely involved in the spirit of the place. And I remember one moment when we went into the room and there was a, a blue blanket and um, I had a particularly beautiful experience with that blanket. Can't describe it, indescribable, but something. His blanket, one of his blankets. Yeah. yeah. And then Vikram came in and did the same thing. And then he got grouchy with the Kirtan musicians because they were playing the music so loud that nobody could even have a conversation anywhere on the ashram <laughs> and, and yelled at them and said, stop doing this. We can't, no one can talk. And they paid no attention to him. Then, then he went and unplugged the amplifier. <laughs> <laughs> and, but on the drive home, you know, we talked endlessly. So, you know, I don't know, what, two hours, Raghu, something like that. Maybe. Yeah, two and a half. Yeah. About this thing of being a pragmatic science teacher and being um, completely um, absorbed in, in the Godhead, in Brahman. Mm. And the, the two were fused in, yeah. in this man. This is so interesting that you're bringing up that particular story around Vikram. Because for about a year before Ramdas left, he kept saying to me, not just me and others, but me knowing I was the one to perhaps put together a retreat around the intersection of science and spirituality. But he didn't want just this, the people represented by spirituality to be only Buddhist or only non-dual. He wanted the heart, the bhakti, to be represented and he, of course, wasn't very well at the time. And I kept saying, well, Ramdas, I don't know. You, you're already doing a couple of retreats. Uh, you almost died like four months ago in last February. I mean, in, a year from this last February. I said, it's probably, and he would, he would let go of it for the moment. But then he would bring it up again. And he'd say, look, just call some people. And uh, he gave me the, you know, the, the most prominent for him that traversed in a similar way to Vikram 
science and spirituality was Danny Goldman from our scene. Danny, who uh, uh, wrote uh, Emotional Intelligence and uh, uh, just a, an extraordinary book. In fact, uh, it's, Danny is somebody I'm going to bring back onto a mind rolling podcast just to. to, to that book is being reissued again with a, a new uh, intro and all that. So Ram Dass, it was really something important So uh, f- for him. And now that he's left and we're doing a lot of virtual, obviously we did a couple of virtual retreats this past year and we're doing a lot of live streaming with different programs and so on. And I finally said, okay, I this is something that I really want to fulfill. And not just... Not just Ramdas said, do it. It, it. The reality of what's going on with COVID and science, for for instance, and the pushback of people not wanting to pay any attention to this to science, quote unquote, I think is is a is certainly an issue in in our society right now, a big one. And uh, I think it's helping to cause the advance of this disease. Uh, everybody, we're in the, f- if you listen to this later on, we're in the fall of October of 2020. So, uh, and then I have loved the work that His Holiness the Dalai Lama has done with uh, people like Danny and Richie Davidson uh, around working in neuroscience, working with scientists to basically um prove out what the Tibetans have been espousing philosophically for I don't know how long Dave a thousand years or something maybe At less when, whenever it went over oh, from you... India to Tibet yeah the teachings yeah. from and you know of course you go back further that from Nalanda which is the university that was really uh, integral to the investigation of the of uh, of the mind uh Shanti Deva and all those kind of incredible beings. So it, uh, I'm just saying, it's funny you're saying this is exactly what Ramdas particularly had in mind mm. to get at the intersection. So I'm, I'm playing around with the title. I should talk about it on a podcast, well, but uh, I, my, my sort of okay placeholder is love and reason, mm. the intersection of spirituality. Mm. Well, that's good science. because it takes in more than what's commonly thought of as science. It also takes in philosophy and, and yeah. psychology and, and uh, you know, techniques. Well, that, that's what, and the Buddha, you know, of course you hear it from the Dalai Lama, don't trust anything. Right. Use your right. own reason, your own experience, you know. So anyhow, yeah. that was, yeah, around uh, well, that Vikram the, thing. The reason, the reason I want to write about it is because, you know, we all have moments in our life when, something gets substantiated in a surprising way. Uh, mm. It just does. And it may not be that you were so out of it that you weren't sort of, shall we say, understanding some of the aspects of the Dharma. But that was a moment for me when I saw him on the ground. And yet I'd spent the last three weeks with him talking about science and particularly reading his fabulous book, amazing book. Um, and knowing, he said, you know, you, you, you were an English professor. Why don't you read the whole book and give me the corrections? And I, uh, <laughs> I, I did read the whole book and I had one correction, <laughs> really? which was some kind of typo. I mean, it was just so beautifully done. Uh, the, 
the personal epiphany of that is what I'm going to try when I do write that chapter. I haven't written it. Um, it's about how somebody's um, real life, such as it is, can suddenly transform you just by something that they do or say. And it can happen in, in auspicious or non-auspicious mm. ways. Mm. Um, you know, in other words, I remember when uh, a cable guy came to mend my cable 10 years ago. Some coaxial cable had broken or something. And he came and he, with his pal and he was a, a, a very humble um, Puerto Rican man. And his pal was a, a real homie from the Bronx. And you know, they came up to the apartment and walked in and I, I said, hello. And, you know, et cetera. And I showed them where the thing was. And while I was sort of searching for the cable, he was looking at my bookshelf and uh, he was called Juan. And he said, so you, you like Yogananda? <laughs> and I said, yes, I really do. And look at this. There are other masters here. You have them all here. He said, Freddie, come over here. And he treated Freddie, who was about 18, you know, <laughs> sort of like a, a real apprentice. You know, it's like, come over here, learn something, man. You know, and he, he picked out different books, you know, Shirley's Obama and Brooklyn of Love and everything. He knew all about it. He didn't know the books exactly, but he knew exactly where I was coming from. And, you know, what happened was, you know, he fixed the cable and then two hours of tea drinking really? with, yeah. with, with uh, Juan and Freddy. <laughs> and during that experience, too, I had a tremendous rush of happiness about it. I mean, this is like overcome. It was ecstatic that these two guys who came to my house in those kind of dull blue uniforms, you know, those one-piece uniforms that people who do those kind of jobs frequently wear, you know, mm. the working... Mm togs and sat around the table and drank tea and asked questions of each other as to what our experiences were with masters. Uh, I mean, seriously, you yeah. know, if my book is about anything, it's going to be about that flow. Mm. And, and, and some of the counterintuitive things happen if your heart is open. I'm not mm. saying my heart is open all the time. It's not, but I try. And the flow of my experiences blows my mind, you know, cause I, I think I want to tell, um, the Malcolm X experience I had, because that was incredibly important in my life. Mm. And, um, you know, in order to do that, I have to just quickly look it up, um, make sure that I'm... Well, let me say something while you're doing that. Yeah, please do. Please uh, do. That. Because what you're talking about is the experiences that we have day to day, most of them are, shall we say, either mundane or you're at work or you're dealing with family and so on and so forth. But there always is the opportunity to recognize just even if you're on a, on a bus going to an airport, say, or just somebody turns around and you make contact and there is a, an acknowledgement, here we are together aren't we? Especially today. Today, I notice it a lot because, uh, we, we, you know, we're all going for walks and staying a little socially, you know, socially distant, we hope. And, but that eye contact is, hey, here we all are. Yeah. And that, hey, we'll, here we all are is so nurturing and so important. 
and uh, I think the idea of these experiences having, and I mean, I haven't had a cable guy, but that's not true. I had somebody else, somebody uh, who was coming over to do some work and, and looked and saw Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba on the wall, never knew of him or met him, but stopped in his tracks. When he stopped in his tracks, I stopped in mine, and our world stopped. So these are occasions where your world stops. The, all of the BS, all of the habitual patterns, neurotic, anything, it all goes away. It's phenomenal. So that's why I love uh, what this book is is becoming. Well, you know, I, I, epiphany is a word that I, I bandy around in my own head because it's such a a useful, um, flexible word because it can mean anything from, you know, an incredible concert that you went to, to, you know, having darshan of a master either on the physical level or the supra-physical level, supra-mental level, and everything in between. One of the most amazing moments of my life came, um, I'll tell you the date, on because the one thing about this book is I have got the dates as to when it all happened. Um, this happened on Friday, February 12th, 1965. Friday, February 12th. Remember that day. And um, how the hell did you get the date of that? Well, it's easy, really. You know, I'll tell you why after. So <laughs> I uh, I could sort of read this, but. I, I think I won't read it. I think I'll just tell it hmm. because it'll make it different then. When you, you know. So I was a student at the University of Birmingham, and um, uh, which in the 60s was what they call a red brick university, meaning the second layer after Oxford and Cambridge, where London University, Birmingham University, Manchester University, Newcastle University, Leeds University. And I was there. And um, 65, by that time, you know, a lot of us were doing anti-Vietnam things, even in England. And we were also very involved in the civil rights thing that was happening simultaneously in the United States. But in England, there were opposite things going on. And one of them was the uh, the emergence of an extreme right-wing proto-fascist group who were demonstrably and out in the open bigoted and racist against the large... West Indian and, and West African immigration into, into Birmingham and other parts of England. I lived deliberately in a Jamaican section of town, got to know about rock steady and ska music and playing dominoes and drinking red stripe beer. It was fantastic. But there were these, now we are seeing them emerge again in the United States, but this was the first time I'd ever come across these guys in England. And okay. Malcolm X was asked to give a very honored lecture at Oxford University for the Oxford Union, as they called it. And only the most prominent people on the planet were invited to do that. And he came. But then when he came to London, he saw in the papers what was happening in Smethwick in Birmingham, which is where I was, where these fascist candidates were running racist, openly racist campaigns. So Malcolm X had heard about this racist foment in Birmingham and made a quick decision to come to Birmingham and make a speech um, to the um, 
mainly to the immigrant population in a certain part of Birmingham. And when he came, someone suggested he come to the university where I was and make a speech to the, uh, it was called, I think it was called the Islamic Society. And uh, it was mainly Ir Iranians and other Gulf nations. There were students along with me at that university. And um, I was completely amazed by this because <laughs> I'd read his autobiography and I, he was an idol of mine because I thought he was so courageous in, in dealing with what in 1960s was virulent, violent, uh, racist behavior. And he stood up against it in a different way from Martin Luther King, but the two of them had some kind of understanding. Uh, anyway, he came to Birmingham and then I'd heard that he was coming and he was going to give this talk at three o'clock in the afternoon on February 12th, 1965. So I went there and it's a big place. It held about mm, 400 people sitting down. And when I got to the door, uh, one of the Iranian sort of organizers said that I couldn't come in. And I, I said, no, I have to, I have to come in. He's part of my life. I mean, this is a moment I can't miss. He said, no, you can't come in. Why? Said, well, Why didn't he say that? He said, you're not a member of the Islamic society. And many people have tried to come and you're not a member, so you can't come oh. in. I said, yeah, but come on, you can make an exception for me. You know me. I knew him. And, you know, he was a nice guy. And But he said, no, I, I get shouted at. People shout at me if I let you in. You know, I said, come on, they won't. They know me. They know it's going to be... And at that moment, there was a staircase behind me, uh, a sort of narrow but rather steep staircase that went somewhere, and Malcolm X came down that staircase. And he, I didn't know this, but he listened to this conversation for a moment. And then he came over and he said, what's the problem here? And so before anybody could say anything, I said, um, I actually almost said Mr. X. <laughs> I wanted to be respectful. I really wanted to be respectful. But he was standing one foot away from me. He was a very charismatic human being. And I just said, they won't let me in, sir. I mean, I'm, I'm not Islamic. Uh, but I'm, you are very important in my life. He said, oh, come in. Of course you can come in. He said, anyway, I always save a seat right in front of me for someone who I think maybe appreciates what I'm saying. So you sit in the front row at center, right in front of me. Oh. <laughs> Died and gone to heaven. So I went in and I sat there and he did a two and a half, almost a three hour speech, which was astonishing. Hmm. Greatest speech I've ever seen. And it was about, he'd come back from Mecca and he spoke about how he did not know until he was in the mosques in Mecca that there were people of every persuasion, Chinese, African, white, black, brown, everybody was there. And he just, he had an epiphany that he could no longer speak in a certain kind of way about black power. And the speech was about that and it was about universal love and it was absolutely amazing. Hmm. We were all stunned. There wasn't a moment, people occasionally would clap or, but you know, it's just the most amazing experience. So anyway, it ended. And you know, a certain sort of crowd of, the in crowd of the Islamic society gravitated towards him and he started to walk out. Then he turned and he said, Come with me. And uh, I was stunned. And I followed him into a small room, a very small room with about 20 people in it who were to receive him. 
and to be respectful to him and he to them. But when we got in there, he said, uh, sit down, I want to talk to you. Um, how come you knew about this? How come you care about this? I said, because it's horrendous to me that I'm sitting on a planet, living on a planet where people judge people by pigmentation. It's asinine, it's cruel, and it's wrong. That's why I'm here. And he hmm. said, do you ever come to America? I said, no. Love to go there. Love Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley. That's what I said to him. <laughs> he said, well, come. And when you come to New York, here's my phone number. And he gave me a 212 number. He said, when you get to New York, call me. I think you're a brave man. And um, I'll take you around Harlem. I'll be your guide. And then he, he left. He didn't pay much attention to anybody else. And I called my dad. I said, Dad, Malcolm X just invited me to New York. <laughs> and and oh, my dad, who was a very funny man, said, okay, you've been drinking, right? I said, no, I've not <laughs> been drinking, Dad. I just went to a Malcolm X lecture. He said, and he asked you to? I said, yes. And um, so I dined out on this <laughs> for, for, you know, for, for quite a while, actually. Um, and decided that I'd take him up on it. Uh, he was assassinated nine days later. Oh, my God. Wow. Right. And, uh, you know, I'd become quite a braggart about this at college. You know, I told them I, 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 I busted into the Islamic meeting. I met him. He invited me to come to New York. He saw something that he liked in me, and, and, and he was very gracious and generous and gentlest person imaginable to be with. Mm, Looking a beautiful voice. And, you know, I was so devastated, you know, but that was one of my first learnings of the impermanence, the impermanence of this level of existence. You know, that I was so, I thought, I'll go to New York. I'll be, he gave me his number. He's going to show me everything. And then I'll just stay there. God's sake. I'll become a member of, I'll mm -hmm. become a Black Panther. Or something. I, I was crazed for 10 days. I think he was, I'm not absolutely sure, but I, I think, in fact, I'd like to check it because I do, I do know. It's just a question of finding my cursor. And now the cursor is Check there. what? I wanted to check um, the date. Just to be exact, because I met him on February 12th, and he was assassinated on. Um, hmm, that's so far out. Uh, he was assassinated about 10 days later. Really? And at that moment in my life, I was 20 years old. Wow. I decided, I made a kind of a conscious decision. This is what can happen to you in your life. Great highs, great lows. But what an experience and how vitalizing it was to me that I felt like I'd been in the presence of somebody who was special and had a message and, and was, was, was not the person I thought he was going to be. He didn't rave on about white, white privilege. He didn't rave on about any of that. He never said a word about that. His message at that moment in time after Mecca and before his death was one of universal love. Mm, and that deeply moved me beyond words. And I realized I can be his friend. Wow. But that wasn't to be. Yeah. I was devastated, Rock. I, I just couldn't, I, I was crying. You know, when I, I, got, I saw the news on the BBC. Mm. Malcolm X, the great American activist, was shot in Harlem at the so-and-so ballroom. You know, uh, 
and I thought, okay, the, the whole thing was a dream. <laughs> this is a dream. That was a dream. Of course, whole thing is a dream. Yeah. Wow. That's that's my Malcolm X story, and it it, it invigorated me because I beca- mm. I got to meet not a guru. He didn't pretend to be such, but I met someone who was so committed to the ideal of equality mm. and egalitarianism, and mm. by that time was no longer telling people to go out and buy rifles and stand outside, you know, st- shops or be Black Panthers. He was saying, you know, try and understand that we're all, on, we're all in this very much together. Yeah. Boy, is that message ever needed. Yeah. I mean, it's always been needed in, in terms of uh, what's gone on in Black America for hundreds of years, but this is all coming to a huge denouement right now. May, you know, maybe it's we're just sensitized this year to the moment because of all of the other pressures and so on. But um, I know that my own life is is changing in relation for sure. And uh, I'm, I mean, we as an organization, of course, are doing whatever we can, but I have been making friends, uh, talking to people from black community, from Indian community, from... Uh, d- Oh, and I'll mention one uh, that was just spectacular that totally fits in with what uh, your story here with uh, Malcolm X. And it's a, it's a man, I think I mentioned to a man named Daryl Davis, who I had on Mind Rolling oh, a couple of weeks ago. At least it was uh, um, put up live then. And he's the person who, a black uh, African-American musician who whose story is so extraordinary in terms of commitment, and that's the word you just used, beyond anything. And he just wanted to find out why are white people, not all white people, but most white people, seem to be really putting black people in a category of... uh, that uh, is, is just creates fear because he hadn't had it. And then suddenly he had it as a youth. He was suddenly looked at as other and per- persecuted as such. So as an adult, he wanted to find this out. And so where to go? He went to the Ku Klux Klan. And he actually arranged a meeting with one of the clan leaders, I think, of one of this, the Eastern region, maybe not the Grand Pupa or whatever. And he describes this meeting that he had in a motel room nearby, both of them, I think, that uh, is just astounding. And please, everybody, go mind-rolling, Daryl Davis, and I don't want to tell the story, but the essence of it is that he did not react the way that 99.9% of us would react when we're told that your brain, you know, it's just a fact. Your brain is smaller, so you're not as intelligent. Can you imagine not reacting to that? I mean, at some point, the only thing he said, well, I think I have more, you know, I have a tremendous amount of intelligence in, in my little finger. He did, there, there was a, a, a human reaction, but not with a tone. Uh, and he made friends with these people. 
they ended up giving up their robes. He's got them in his closet, more than a number of them he has gotten with. And he said, "Just it's because when they meet me and, and we share, they can no longer deny the truth of we are all equal. And, and we were fed what we were fed, you know, coming up into the families we came up with, into the causes and conditions in, in the area that we were in, and we no longer, so they actually dropped their robes. They, you know, they just couldn't go on to carry on a belief system that they then realized was not real. But his courage and commitment and his, uh, his love it couldn't be without that. Just completely changed the atmosphere of of the moment for for everybody. Amazing man, Daryl Davis. I mean that 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 is so that is real courage. Yeah, because he yeah. could have been. I don't know he who could have been offed so quickly and without oh. anybody ever knowing about. Listen, the 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 yeah. guy that came with him, who was his bodyguard, the the clan guy, had a gun. He knew that. Daryl knew that. And an incident, again, I don't want to tell the story, but an incident happened that created fear immediately. It was a noise that happened that made everyone think, oh, my God, is someone getting ready to shoot kind of a thing. And, uh, and maybe it was the moment that naturally emerged for just no reason at all and had no bearing and no interrelation with what was going on in the room with these people because he was with his assistant. It was four people. But that moment changed the whole thing because they all laughed. They all laughed at, oh, my God, imagine. Again, I won't go into what it was, but uh, do listen. It is just uh, extraordinary. So, yeah, so that kind of commitment. Well, that's real. Yeah. Yeah. That's real... uh... Yeah, I got is to say that. I mean, yeah. you know. So I mean, uh, my meeting I, with Malcolm X was not brave, but I learned something, you know, from him that I think I needed to learn, you know, at that age, which was that you know you don't know anything about anyone until you encounter even them. You only know what is displayed, and what he was all about was 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 that transmission. I saw no perceivable egoism in him. Mm. And um, mm. same with That's David. I, I, commitment. You know, yeah, I mean, there's always an ego that drives the car, kind of. Yeah. yeah. But, it, yeah. but you know, it, see, to see that... Not attached in, in, to it is the whole game. Right, yeah. right, right, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, some of the... As we've been talking about what I'm putting into words, you know, most of it is is actually about those kind of things where um i remember i'm not going to go into this in detail but i did spend a lot of time in south dakota on the rosebud reservation with the peyote master tribes and or or clans uh and and this was in 1973 and i learned stuff i was so frightened so much of the time uh because of what was going on at the time which was wounded knee and leonard crowdog was a spiritual uh, shaman uh, that was at Wounded Knee to try and help in the in the rebellion. And it so happened that I went there just after that. And um, mm. it was totally transforming. A, a, 
transcendental experience induced by uh you know a plant in the ground mm-hmm. and um that's what a little... was interesting what, what, yeah no no i'm just saying you know that is so what what i believe will be helping us into as we go forward here is plant medicine and that's something really important and, and i know you yeah, i remember well, I you would, telling me about it, them it was just such a, a an integrated experience between the environment and the family and mm. just like you had in india i i I, many times I had there, and but I remember the fear with into which I went this because I was persuaded to do it. I didn't want to do it, and but I'd, I'd met Leonard Crowdog in in Manhattan, and was at a ceremony with him, and I was invited. It was the fiftieth wedding anniversary of his parents, Henry and Mary Crowdog, and they they invited four hundred Indians, as they didn't mind being called, <laughs> um, from about forty tribes, mm-hmm. and they all came. And I was there with with my wife and with two other people. And I don't know why I brought it up exactly, except to say that these moments are so precious to me because they they changed me profoundly, like immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And not so much from knowledge to enlightenment, non, nothing like that. More like from fear to surrender. Uh, that when I when I became aware that these people were holding out their arms to us for help. And for understanding of their of their spiritual teachings, and that we were there to hear it, and it was very important. And and you know, was in terms of my sense of self, something between role and soul, neither, but something between those two states of awareness. I realized that I was I was supposed to be there. I was supposed to be there. I was supposed to see this thing mm. and experience yeah, this thing. Perfect. And, and just before we went into the ceremony, you know, they built a hogan, a huge round building with a hole in the top for the smoke from the fire to go through. There were people uh, round and round and round the hogan waiting to get in. 380 people or something. All Native Americans. And I was in that line. And then Leonard Crowdog in his full outfit as the roadman, the medicine man and roadman shaman of the of the event, stunning, uh, came over to me and said, okay, I want to talk to you. I, said, <laughs> I was still scared. I said, what about Leonard? He said, we, we did a, a, not a ceremony like this, but a sort of a ceremony about uh, two months ago. And, and some uh, uh, white people came and they were sitting in the Hogan, not this one, another one, smaller one, kind of a rough primitive one. And as one of them moved, his hair caught a nail on the wall and it came off. And the three of them were all FBI infiltrators. And we threw them out. <laughs> so, but I want you to look at all the people here, you and your wife. And if you see anything that makes you nervous, let me know. So I was mm. given that job, you know, and I watched, I stood there like a bouncer oh, for outside the Hogan watching everybody trips mm. But they were all Native Americans. I mean, it was kind of ridiculous. But, you know, because they were all in that bath mm. of the plant. Yeah. And, um, but it, that kind of experience to me made the life um, that I happened to inhabit, you know, this particular movie of me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as, as, as in, you know, rather than just being a movie, it was moving. Yeah. Everything <laughs> moved you in this. We were lucky in our generation, Robert, because we were in our, you know, 
youth, there was a lot of 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 substances and ideas. Yeah, and yeah well, there's there is today, and there's a, it's real yeah, analogous yeah. actually. Yeah, uh, to true. that time. So we're kind of at the end. Uh, I do want to say one thing because it just struck me when you said, I finally knew that this was absolutely perfect to have, you didn't say it that way, but that this was where I was supposed to be and what I was supposed to be doing. And I, it just, uh, because I did a, a intro to a Ram Dass podcast yesterday and uh, he said, the situation you are in at any moment, whatever it is, is absolutely perfect. It's just a mosaic that's unfolding before my eyes. Gee, maybe there's something there in a title for the book. A mosaic unfolding. Unfolded That's what it you. is. Yeah. You know, I mean, as always, he articulates beyond articulation you know it's amazing it's like an arrow out of his words that goes somewhere somewhere deeper and you know that's another one to yeah add to the thousands of them yeah, but certainly understanding that each moment and each occurrence and each interrelation with whatever is in our lives is just a perfect opportunity and we understand that and we surrender as you said into it so you know a rather funny anecdote just to finish about that it can be iconic or it can be mundane it does you said this before and it's true i was in there's a a, a, a shop or a store in new york called Pap- papyrus where you buy fancy birthday cards uh, yeah 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 and and there's one in grand central station and i went in there to get a birthday card for someone and um it was crowded and it was round about all of the most the most intense of the me too stuff mm-hmm, was happening mm-hmm. When you know whatever, so I went in, and I was it, it was so crowded that it was pressed against someone, and she uh, w- looked like either an Egyptian or an African queen, mm. pharaoh, and she was incredibly. I mean, I couldn't believe I just couldn't believe what she looked like, and she was completely bald, mm. and I, I a whole dialogue went on in my head. Then it was like I want to tell this person she's incredible but i can't because of all these jokers out there intruding on people's on women's spaces Mm. and before i could do anything i I said excuse me you just look so amazing i can't believe it and she looked at me she said oh my god oh my god i said why are you saying that did i say something wrong she said no 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 i had long long locks to my right down my back till two hours ago and then we cut them all off because I wanted to be like more African, less. Thank you so much. Thank you. I so appreciate what you said. I said, well, you are just amazing looking. And I'm so glad to have met you. And she said, oh, thank you. And, you know, I, I, I did go through a little back and forth there. Because yeah, I didn't want yeah. her to think I'm in a papyrus store packed against her and I'm I'm hitting on her, yeah. I mean, you know, because there's so much yeah. of that in the press right now from yeah. people we know, not yeah. know personally. But those moments are just as significant as the moment, mm-hmm. as any other moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. and of course, you can take that further and talk about, you know, washing the dishes and that can be just as revealing, depending on what you're doing with your awareness at the moment of doing anything. What's, what's, what are you allowing in? What are you allowing in that, that 
Yeah. Most of the time yeah. we screen out. Mm-hmm. We screen it out. We screen the flow out because we're scared of it. It's like, do I have any money? You know, do I have shelter? Do I have food? Minjur. Yeah. Yeah. Minjur Rinpoche. Yep. Oh, we're going to put him in the old show notes. We're going to put Vikram Sony's book in the show notes. And uh, uh, I really appreciate you doing this because I know, you know, I've been bugging you too much about it and and to come and share uh, some of what actually i hope this maybe will even go a ways to edifying how you're going to do this whole thing and well no it helps a lot but you know it's 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 slightly awkward for me because it's sort of like well you know i'm just telling these stories me me here flashy life i've had and actually my life it's like everybody else's it's full of you know, hills and valleys and moments of despair. And but that, that's the whole idea is to share. That's all we're doing. In the, yeah, the, right. the, you know, the guy that came over to fix your cable, it's, it became, it's just the sharing. And yeah. so is this book. And so, you know, so is uh, well, it's whatever inspiring. each I'm, of us does. I'm, well, I'm doing it, so I'll make myself do it better. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, because okay. otherwise I'll just laze around and it's all, yeah. it's my life becomes just enveloped in Netflix. Uh, david and i are in the middle of finishing a movie by the way okay so don't listen to him (laughs) meanwhile (laughs) thanks again though thanks for being here david great and uh, this is mind rolling on be here now network go to be here now network.com slash mind rolling or just go to be here now network and check out like that uh, ramdas thing that i uh, we just put up around karma that's uh, when is that that'll be up Uh, by the time you hear this. So check that out. And gee, we have so much good stuff. Thank you, everybody. Namaste. Namaste. Namaste.